The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Gina Polesetsky. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in California with a background in trauma-informed care including specialties in EMDR, Gottman Couples Therapy and ACT. Much of her practice is focused on working with trauma processing and skills building through and in recovery from narcissistic interpersonal, emotional, physical and sexual abuse. In this episode, we are going to talk about what happens after being in a tough relationship with someone who thinks mostly about themselves. We'll chat about why we might still feel drawn to people who act like this, why our bodies can start feeling sick from the stress, and how we can start to feel better and heal. Plus, we'll give some ideas about how to handle it when these folks try to trick others with their stories. Keep listening. Hi, Gina. Thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you in this podcast episode. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting today. That's great to hear. And um, let's get started with the questions that we have to have today. And the first question is, I was in an abusive narcissistic relationship, escaped it and learned everything about trauma bonding. And I understand that I was trauma bonded to that person. But why am I still gravitating towards other narcissistic people? Mm -hmm. Yes. This is a common question and a common issue that comes up. Um, but I do think that when we're discussing narcissistic relationships or really is just a form of an abusive relationship in general, I think it's important that we start back with the concept of the theory of the cycle of violence. This was created by Dr. Walker in the 1970s. So, um, and I'll send a copy of this for your viewers to look at. It's essentially a circle that goes around and it outlines the patterns that abusive relationships tend to take. So the pattern begins with a period of calm. Everything is fine. And then we move into a period of tension building. That leads to an episode of abuse or a violence. And then after that, there's a honeymoon phase. I'm so sorry, bringing somebody back in. Sometimes there's gifts. Usually there's a lot of apologies, expressions of love, promises. This is never going to happen again. Things will be better in the future. And then we return to a period of calm and the cycle begins again. So the concept of trauma bonding is really a lot like the addiction of gambling. The, the psychology behind the two is the same because it creates this pull towards something that may be hurting us. And the psychological explanation for that is called the intermittent reinforcement cycle. So um, this is the cycle of rewards and punishments. And what it really means is that the person who's in the abuse of relationship, they're really trying to say or to do the thing that needs to happen to get the reaction that they're hoping for from their abuser. And sometimes they get the reward and sometimes they do not. 
So the partner of the abuser just never knows when that's going to happen. They don't know what they're going to get. And psychologically, that just creates a dependence, a need to like try harder to get the abuser's approval so they can get back into that honeymoon phase of the cycle where all the whole thing is like trying to pull back to that honeymoon phase that feels so good, especially when you're comparing it to these other incidences of abuse or of violence in the relationship. So knowing all of this about trauma bonding, it really doesn't in and of itself help us avoid gravitating towards other people who will recreate that cycle of violence in their behavior. We can know something cognitively and not know it in our bodies, know it in our hearts. It's human nature to gravitate towards things that we know. Uncertainty or the unknown, it tends to be the most scary concepts that people grapple with. When people come into therapy for any variety of reasons, so many times what they're really having anxiety around or working through is this fear of, I don't know what's going to happen next. And that question happens. Um, you know, what will happen in the future? What if I make this decision in the present? That worry of not, not knowing is so normal. So if a person knows how to survive, how to function within an abusive relationship structure, they usually unconsciously, they understand the cycle of violence. They know how to work the situation. They'll continue gravitating towards that type of relationship because it's familiar. It's painful. Yes you know how to do it. So keep in mind also that after leaving an abusive relationship, a person is often really beaten down in spirit and self-worth. These relationships are very destructive to one's self-esteem. So leaving a relationship like this can sometimes lead someone to feel like they aren't worth more than what they had which also leads to returning to that type of relationship. If this is all you're, you're worth, if this is all that you can expect out of life, then it doesn't really put much psychological incentive to try something different. And in addition, a survivor of abuse may feel that they know how to function, that they don't know how to function in a normal relationship. So if you're stuck in this cycle of abuse and the honeymoon phase is really intense, right? So that's so important to know too. Like, yes, the abusive incidences are intense, but the honeymoon phase is really intense too with that love bombing and that attention and affection. Um, we can get addicted to that feeling. So you get into a normal relationship and there aren't over the top gestures. Everything's kind of more like this even keel. Um, you kind of wonder like, is this really what it's about? You know, you need, you need that, that pull. So without the extreme highs, there aren't extreme lows, but after leaving an abusive relationship, a normal one can honestly feel boring. To some people for a period of time. And it can take time to reconnect to the comfort of smaller low moments and smaller high moments. Sometimes also, we return to similar relationship styles with the confidence that we have learned so much from the previous experience that now we can correct our mistake. Now we can fix the abuser. How wonderful that would feel, right? to know that we can make this person 
better. So many people that get stuck in these relationships are people with deep levels of compassion. And they want to make this person better. And they want no one else to ever have this bad experience. So that's another reason that we might return to the same relationships. I'm like, oh, I got this now. Now I know how to fix this. So temporarily, in a sense, it gives the partner of the abuser a sense of power over the situation that hurt them so deeply. So my hope is that the person who posed this question can find some comfort in the idea that it's not abnormal to continue to seek an unhealthy relationship after surviving a narcissistic abuser. But of course, that's not probably what they want for their future. So I think it's really helpful to fully, fully process the abusive experience and start to identify what experiences fit into that cycle of violence? Where do you notice, oh, wow, that was the honeymoon. That was the tension building. So as we begin to identify what behaviors were likely manipulation as opposed to authentic connection, this is a great thing that we can do in a therapeutic space with a therapist who's familiar with these issues, but we can also do this on our own in journaling, in group therapy with other survivors, processing with our friends, if they're open to that type of communication with you. And then also I want to share, it's really important to start looking at the tools of manipulation. And if we have time later, I'll talk more about those tools because I they're the kind of things, once you hear them, you start seeing them everywhere and really are able to recognize and make more active choices about what to do with them. But they create just a greater sense of awareness about the behaviors of people around you so that you can start to work on boundary setting. So what are my boundaries? It's a matter of exploration. No one can tell you what they are. It's about what feels good or what feels okay for you and what doesn't. And that's a practice that we can start working on in really small encounters, even with strangers or with friendships or work relationships or family relationships, where you can practice things like saying no to things that you don't want saying yes to things that you do want, setting limits on things that are pushing you past your comfort level within your relationships, learning to practice these healthy boundaries with others, such as before unloading on a friend about your abusive relationship, saying something like, you know, I'd really like to process some things with you about my relationship. But before I do that, I'd like to check in and see if you're in a good place to hear about it. Please, let, please tell me. I want to respect your needs, too. That's an example of starting to extend healthy boundaries out to other people so we can start learning how to do that for ourselves as well. Thank you so much. That was a really comprehensive answer to this, uh, to this question. And uh, yeah, thank you. Um, then we have... I feel very stuck due to not trusting myself anymore. I question my interactions with everyone now and I'm so cautious about any relationships with other people now, not just romantically. Uh, I'm finding it hard to find a sense of who I am and I'm really quite fearful of making any decisions. It was very strange because although difficult, 
Once I made the decision to leave, I did after 10 years and the first four months really pushed myself and was coping fairly well, starting to do things I did before, seeing friends, really embracing my freedom, even with the urges there to make contact. Now I have, now I have just flattened out, all my motiv motivation has gone and I started having nightmares and flashbacks and panic attacks, uh, which has now been go which has now been going on for about five months. I'd like to know from a neurological perspective, if there's a cycle of stages that occur after experiencing this sort of trauma and ways to help get through it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting question. And I, I think it's really important before we start just to mention that nobody responds to trauma the same way. We all have our own unique experiences, but it is not at all unusual to have what the questioner describes as this like immediate rush of joy, a flood of excitement, the freedom that one has when they're exiting this abusive relationship, because leaving is just, it's so hard to accomplish. It's hard to break that cycle that we talked about a moment and you did it. So that in itself deserves a lot of validation in and of itself. But of course, leaving is not the same thing as healing. And when the rush wears off, you're still the same person. You still have the same hurts, the same fears, and they have to be nurtured and healed. So what came up for me when I was listening to this question is that the person who wrote it is describing things like flashbacks, panic attacks, and nightmares that sounds like it's lasted for more than a month. So we could be coming into meeting a diagnosis for PTSD. Obviously, I am not here to diagnose anyone I have never met and not worked with, but I think that's a concern that could come up here. Um, with a level of concern around that, I think it's important to seek professional help because untreated PTSD can lead to changes in mood. It can lead to aggression, behaviors that are reckless, depressive symptoms. So highly recommending that this person seek out treatment for themselves. Um, and of course, not every person experiencing a traumatic uh, relationship like this will get PTSD. And we don't really know why. We, mm -hmm. No one quite understands that piece. The best guess that we have or theory is that some people have protective factors ahead of time. So things, these are things like a really solid support system of mm -hmm. people that care about people who did not bail on them when they isolated during a relationship who were right there, or just really strong coping skills, an ability to regulate their emotions, which is something that we either learn or we do not learn in our early childhood. We may have mm -hmm. to develop that later in life. Um, or sometimes even just an ability to make meaning of our experience. Mm -hmm. And we can have just a really negative, impactful experience. But when a person is able to make meaning of that, it's a lot easier to cope. Like, okay, this happened to me, but this is what I'm meant to learn from it. This is where I'm going from here. That's an example of making meaning. So these are things that shield someone from being impacted quite significantly. 
But whether someone meets the diagnosis of PTSD or not, the symptoms that are being presented here, they need to be addressed. And it sounds like they're really impacting this person's quality of life. So my words to this person are this. This is a normal reaction to a very traumatic experience. You are normal. You can get back to that feeling of ease, of calm that you were seeking. Please seek out professional help to assist in processing the trauma and to help you rebuild those coping skills that you need to live the life that you richly deserve. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. And uh, yeah, it sounds like it's really affecting the quality of life for like f mm -hmm. five months having nightmares and panic attacks. And yeah, uh, mm -hmm. do you do you know uh, about the more about the neurological aspect of the brain? Like what happened? Like for example, when we have the PTSD or mm, like in general, is there something that happens in the brain when we do? experience abuse and when we do uh make the decision to leave and get out and uh yeah do you do you know something about that more i don't know a lot about the neurological experience because that's not my expertise but i will mm -hmm. say that one of the hallmarks of um ptsd or really kind of any traumatic experience is this hyper vigilance concept so mm -hmm. if you think about you know, if our, our brains are ancient and they still run in ancient ways that are sometimes very helpful and often really not helpful at all. But if our brain is conditioned to think about there's a bear chasing us, you know, when the danger comes into place, our adrenaline system fires up and that firing up is designed to give us a boost of energy so that we can decide whether or not we're going to fight or flight and have the the skills to do that we've also now discovered the freeze aspect but i won't get into all of that yeah. the point being in modern day we don't have bears chasing us at least not very often i don't think many of your listeners are going <laughs> to encounter that but we do have all of these other, you know, experiences that we do need to protect ourselves from. And when we're in a long-term abusive relationship, that fight or flight system ends up getting fired up a lot. And it can almost get into a position of being stuck where we're just running on high levels of adrenaline. And we know our bodies can't function like that. There's a lot of really long-term negative health consequences from it and our brains can't function. So that I do know about it. The specific, specifics of the neurology, I, I can't really say. Um, and I do know that there's there's not a lot that we know about mm -hmm. how our brain works. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. then, then we have, why does experiencing narcissistic abuse make the body respond mentally and physically and ailments start happening? You start acquiring, acquiring diseases you never had before, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, migraines, and etc. Why does this happen? Mm. Well, that ties into what we were just talking about. Um, so there is this book that I love. I'm totally into bibliotherapy, therapy by reading books. Um, so I love recommending great books. Um, this book I, I recommend with a trigger warning because it does um, have uh, narratives of abuse in it. But there's a very famous book um, by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. 
And the premise of the book essentially is talking about this mind body connection. They don't function separately. It all works together in one system. And we really can have a tendency, I think, as people to ignore that, to, to forget that our body's impacted by everything we experience. Um, but the premise is that the, the traumatic experiences, they rewire our brains. And this particularly will impact things like trust, pleasure, feelings of control or lack of control, just to name a few, but it also shows up in our bodies because trauma is stored within us like information. So when something bad happens to us, say like, say you're like walking in your bedroom and you bump your knee on the corner of a piece of furniture, we need our body to store that experience so that the next time we walk a little bit further around, so we don't repeat that pain. But the same true of our abusive relationships, our bodies and our brains will hold that experience and the effort to ensure that we don't repeat the pain. But when something's exceedingly traumatic, it's just more complicated than walk further around the furniture. It's no longer that simple to process out. So all that needs to be processed and sorted out in our thoughts that we can start to feel secure again, that we've learned, um, what we needed from the experience to start to let go of the pain. Cause that's the point It's like, Oh, what do I need to learn from this so that it's no longer necessary for me to hold it quite so tightly. And why is it impacting our bodies? Well, if you think about it, you have less energy to keep your body functioning well when you're living through trauma. Studies have shown repeatedly the link between stress and physical illnesses like heart disease, obesity, asthma, gastrointestinal is really common. So much of our nervous system is in our gut. So it's very easily impacted. Diabetes, migraines, I think they mentioned, high blood pressure, insomnia. I'm sure people will be familiar with that one coming up. Inflammation in the bodies, which can lead to autoimmune disease. Alterated menstrual cycles is really common and chronic stress over time is really just your body trying to tell you something. It's like, help pay attention to my needs. Like this isn't working anymore. So part of that, I think is like, you know, SOS. I don't know if anybody knows it stands for save our ship. Mm. Time for you to take a look and approach to right the ship. You're in a storm. The storm is coming. That's the stress. You're the ship and you need to send out the SOS so we can start dropping the anchor down and getting ourselves stable again. So the first thing that somebody needs to do is get medical assistance for any of these physical issues. You can't, you can't treat the brain and not treat the body. You have to really, you have to look at both because ongoing physical ailments can cause ongoing emotional stress. So yeah. it's really difficult, you know, to like, how do I, how do I do, how do I do one and not the other? Um, and then at the same time, you know, hand in hand, it's time to start addressing the past trauma so that the healing process can really get moving. Um, and the body keeps the score 
um, Bessel van der Kolk talks about several different therapies that he feels can be really helpful in this. Um, some of them I incorporate in my own practice with trauma survivors like mindfulness, yoga, EMDR um, is common neurofeedback. Um, if you're experiencing negative health consequences after chronic stress or trauma, it's really advisable to get that help so that you can return to well-being. Mm. Thank you so much. And I have heard that book being men mentioned like many times. Like yes, it's to, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, then we have how do we progress progress from process processing the abuse? what happened to us to focusing on owning our healing slash recovery process, rebuilding ourselves, tools and steps. Mm. Well, I think these two things, processing and rebuilding should be happening simultaneously bit by bit. Okay. Can't one without the other, just like we can't heal the body without working on healing the mind. So we need to process We need to feel our feelings that they're, they're there to be felt. That's what they're for. But we also have to forgive ourselves. We have to engage in acts of self-compassion. It's really, really crucial. This is a good time to take a pause, to review our values. How do we want to express them in dis different aspects of our life? And I would think about all the aspects, like what are our values around family, community, work, personal growth, parenting, health, social relationships, spirituality, leisure and fun. Also so crucial and important. Can't forget leisure and fun. What are our values in those areas and what actions do we need to take to get closer to meeting our values? And this can be something as simple as you want to take a pottery class. Or you want to re-engage with friendships that maybe fell out of your lives during the abusive relationship. And when we take time to think about it, we can all find areas where we can start to take additional positive steps towards our values. So this is also a time, I think, that we need to start reassessing boundaries, which we talked about before. What is feeling good? What isn't feeling good? Because in an abusive relationship... It's like putting our intuition in a blender. You walk out of that experience and very often you have to get back in touch with your inner voice and recalibrate. We describe intuition as knowing something without knowing why. Mm. You don't need to know why, right? It's a gut feeling, right? It comes from deep inside of us, but When you scramble all of that up and not knowing which way is up after a relationship, it really takes a little bit of focused effort to get back into touch with your gut feelings. So part of that could be a therapeutic process. Um, you could consider individual therapy. You could also consider group therapy with other people who are working on processing. I love group therapy. It has the quality of universality of understanding like you're not alone in this. There are other people who have this experience. You learn so much from hearing others. You extend compassion to others, which helps us learn to extend compassion to ourselves. Um, you might also want to work through some of these things like in reading and bibliotherapy, like I talked about, journaling, um, reflecting on where you've been and starting to reclaim your story. 
Because remember that this is not just a time for pain and for grief, but it's also a time to kind of view yourself as that phoenix, right? That just rises from the ashes into this glorious new creature, spreads its wings. And you can too. This is a time to rebuild and to replenish. Thank you so much. That was uh, also beautiful kind of mentally uh, like mental image that you just mm -hmm. gave about the phoenix i think those are those are important too uh yeah then we have i'm in a very bizarre frustrating situation where my narcissist has turned his ex-wife and son into flying monkey co-abusers by telling them lies about me by portraying himself as a victim and setting me up to look bad to my horror, he took videos of me one evening when I came home from a party and was slightly inebriated, inebriated, antagonized and baited me into an argument, then sent it to his ex-wife claiming I am an angry drunk abusing him. I tried reaching out to his son who I thought might be able to help partly because he is in medical school. However, to my surprise, the son re reacted angrily that I am quote-unquote, trashing his dad, and the ex-wife told him not to speak to me, and I have been shut out. It's amazing how the narcissist controls them with false narratives and triangulates using the ex-wife's jealousy turning her against me. I feel so outraged by the lies the narcissist is telling them. I want to send them an email letting them know he is telling lies about me, and I'm wondering how to do that. How can I educate them what is really going on? All this prevents me from moving on and healing. Yes, this will prevent you from moving on <laughs> and healing. I'm going to be very firm in my response on this. And, and I want to extend this with love and with compassion for the person who's experiencing this. But from the way that this question was phrased, I'm assuming they're no longer in this narcissistic relationship, which is really causing me to question their need to involve themselves in the narrative. They said, there's a saying, um, not my circus, not my monkeys, not my flying monkeys in this person's case. Mm -hmm. Winning a war with a narcissist looks less like a combat and more like a reserving of one's own energy for care and well-being. <clears throat> so if you really want to move on and you really want to heal, the first thing you have to do is detach from the process of battling your ex. I like to think of this like imaginary hourglass that I have every day. It's full of the sand and it represents all of the energy that I get to expend for my day. And every day it gets flipped because our energy is a finite resource. We, we don't like to think of it that way. We like to think, oh, I'll just push harder. Or I'll just add this extra thing. But we actually have a limited amount of energy that we get to expend in our day, in our week, in our life. And sometimes we can get so caught up in fighting unnecessary battles that we don't even realize that our sand is just slipping away throughout the day. And at times we can even expend so much energy on things that aren't serving us that there really just isn't anything left to take care of ourselves or do anything positive. 
or move ourselves into places that are serving us. So having that visual for me of my energy, it helps me decide what's worth it and what is it better to let go of. There is another famous author who I love, um, Eli Wiesel. He said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, Mm -hmm. right? So even if it feels forced at first, what I would encourage this person to do, if they're not in actual danger, there's no real danger from this ex, I would encourage them to start to move, at least in their behaviors, towards a stance of indifference and reserve the excess energy for their own care. And over time, I think they will find that that indifference will become more and more real every day because they deserve peace. They deserve calm. They deserve healing. And trying to control the narrative isn't going to get them there. Mm, Yeah, thank you. That was really helpful. Would your answer be different if the person in this situation would be still involved Mm. with the narcissistic person? Well, I have to say, if the person was still involved in this relationship, I still don't feel that this grasping out externally to the to the son and ex-wife and all of this is really serving any kind of purpose. Their issue that they have is with the narcissist themselves. So if they're still in this relationship and they're feeling so gaslit, so controlled by this person's narrative that it's no longer tolerable, then I think we have a different conversation in our hands. But once again, the conversation is not about controlling the narrative. It's good luck. That's something you could spend all of your energy for your day on and still not win. Mm. It's like banging our head against the wall and then expecting things to change. You're just going to mess up the wall and hurt your head. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. good point, good point. Um, You mentioned somewhere in the beginning that if we have time for discuss about tools of manipulation, Mm -hmm. I'm just checking up with you. What do you mean by that? And if you would like to talk about that now? Yeah, yeah, if we have a little bit of time. So the tools of manipulation, um, these are not... uh, original concepts to this person, but there's uh, another author I love um, who's a leading expert um, on risk assessment, um, threat management, things like that. His name's Gavin DeBecker, and he wrote this book called The Gift of Fear. It's a bit dated at this point, but the heart of the um, content is just dead on. Mm-hmm. So he kind of collected these, you know, short concepts of the tools of manipulation and explained that, you know, we see these in our everyday life. People try to manipulate us all the time and it's not always a, 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 a ill intent. Like mm-hmm. a child is manipulating you to get a piece of candy or a salesperson's manipulating you to get you to buy a car. Mm-hmm. But if we can recognize what they are, you start to notice them. And then at least you're having an ability to make an active choice. Is, is this something I'm okay with? Or 
you know, do I want to notice that this is manipulation and make a different choice? Um, so there's just a few of them. Um, the first one is forced teaming, um, which is when an I becomes a we. So this is like a we're in the same boat sort of attitude. And in a narcissistic abusive relationship, I can see this coming up like, you know, the abuser does something really um, inappropriate and is like, we, well, we're in this, we're in this situation. What are we going to do? Right. When actually it was really them that started the situation in the first place and you're being manipulated um, into taking this on for yourself. Um, the next one is charm and niceness. So <laughs> Kevin DeBeckers is something that always makes me laugh. He says, think of charm as a verb, not a trait. So a person isn't charming. They are charming you. Mm, yeah. That is a very different thing. And if you consciously can like remember that, um, you'll start to see it. To charm is to compel, to control by allure, by attraction. And the best defense to that is really just to stay checked into your intuition. And then you can decide if you want to be moved by the charm or not. <laughs> so... Um, the next one is too many details. We see this a lot in narcissistic abusive relationships because it's a, a common thing that we see when someone is lying. Because when people tell the truth, they're not worried about you doubting whether what they're saying is true or not. So they don't feel like they have to give you all of this additional support. But when they lie, even if what they say sounds credible to you, they know it is incredible. So... They often will start filling in more and more details to the story. And the best defense is to really put what's being said into context. Does that make sense? Both what is being said and why it's being said to you. Um, three more, uh, loan sharking. Uh, so this is a technique when somebody offers you something, but their intent is clearly to get something in return from you. Like, an example would be when a man buys a drink for a woman at a bar. They don't know. They're just like, oh, they just send the drink. Are they really giving the drink? Maybe, but probably not. What mm. they're really buying is their opportunity to come and speak with you. I gave you a drink. Now you owe me a conversation. Um, so Sometimes this is just a strategy to make a connection. No fault on that. It's hard to meet people, but sometimes it is an exploitation of fairness and obligation because people don't want to hurt someone's feelings or be unfair. So the best defense to this is really to remember you didn't ask for the thing in the first place. You don't have to give anything back in return. You get to decide. Mm. The next is the unsolicited promise. So this is almost always questionable motive. A lot of these other ones we can see in normal parts of life, right? Mm -hmm. They're not always ill intent. This one almost always is. So this is a statement like, I'm just going to drive you home and then I'll go. I promise. I promise. All unsolicited promises should be met with skepticism you should always ask yourself, why does this person need to convince me of that? And the best defense is to, at least to yourself, say, yeah, you're right. I am hesitant about trusting you. And maybe with good reason. Because the promise 
is like pointing it out. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, which is to me, just the gold standard of what we need to really pay attention to with manipulation. And I also want to point out to your listeners, all of these are wonderful things to keep in mind when you begin dating. Look out for them. Notice them. Notice what's coming up. When you see them, pay attention. Is this person trying to manipulate me? Because in this way, you can actually prevent entering into one of these types of relationships before it even happens. Mm -hmm. The unsolicited promise is a big one, but the big gold standard is somebody who discounts your no. So important to pay attention to that. No is a word that should never be negotiated because the person who doesn't hear your no is trying to control you. There is no other explanation for that. So when you let someone talk you out of your no, you might as well just wear a sign around your neck that says, yeah, you're in charge. Because that's what's happening. And remember that when you say no, and then you take it back, what you're teaching someone is that no really means maybe, or no means try harder the next time which can really set up some abusive situations. So no is a complete sentence. Anything we say after the word no is a negotiation and we really should not negotiate no. Those are the tips. Thank you. It was such an important thing to go those through. And uh, yeah, there are so, so, so many like <laughs> different ways <laughs> that people uh, yeah, manipulate uh, others sometimes with ill intent and sometimes not, like you said. But yeah, it really opens your eyes when you know about these these things, and it's easier maybe to navigate navigate the world and make sure that you are safe. Yeah, absolutely, makes it easier to navigate the world, and and also to remember that you know so many times we worry about what strangers are going to do. Oh, you know, can I walk home at night or will a stranger attack me? Or, you know, these types of worries are very common and frequent. But really, most danger comes from our intimate relationships, not from strangers. Mm -hmm. And our, our senses are dulled a little bit on understanding or recognizing these tools of manipulations with people that we really care about. And that's why I just think it's so important to just know them so well so that you can recognize them as they come up. And I will send you um, a PDF of them and you can post them for your listeners if you like. In today's podcast notes, you'll find free downloadable PDFs on the cycle of violence and tools of manipulation. These resources will help you deepen your understanding of the topics Gina discussed with us today. Feel free to download them and study at your own pace. Today, I think we had some great questions and great, great, great answers. So I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. And thank you, Gina, so much for coming to this episode and giving such wonderful advice. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. 
Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.